0: Lord, you may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapters 3, and uh, I, I was just inspired this morning to take it to chapter 4, verse 1, just the first verse. Some of you start to panic when I say, oh, I felt the Lord laying it on my heart to go even further in the text. We don't want to be here all day, Pastor Josh. I can just, I can just hear you thinking that. I do want to just encourage you, and I get teased about this all the time, and I deserve it. I deserve it when you tease me, because every time we're working our way through a particular text of Scripture, I say, oh, this is my favorite passage. And then we go to a different passage, and I'm like, oh, no, no, this is my favorite passage. And I think I've had every single book in the Bible attributed to me at some point as my favorite passage, and it's okay, because I love, I do love them all. They're all wonderful. But we come to the end of our study this morning. It wasn't intended to be uh, an in-depth, verse-by-verse exegesis of 2 Corinthians, and we had no commitment to go all the way to the end. I was just walking through these first couple of chapters to open our eyes to the beauty of ministry. Uh, Next Sunday, we're going to be starting in on Romans. Now, Romans is my favorite book of the whole Bible. (laughs) But I also really love Second Corinthians, and I feel, as a pastor, as a preacher, you come to um, a point where you have to move over to a different book of the Bible, and you feel, if you haven't come all the way to the end of this book, you feel like you've left the job only half finished, and it just doesn't sit well with me. So I just ask you um, to please go home this week and read it. Go all the way through Second Corinthians, pick it up in chapter 4. And And just read it all the way to the end and and meditate on it, and let god 's word just soak in you and If you find time this week, grab Romans as well and and just start chugging your way through the first couple of chapters of Romans. Um, this is such sweet these are sweet words from the Lord, and uh, i I love them, and I know you do too, so um, even though we 're stopping here don 't don 't leave the book unfinished. Read it for yourself at home this week next week we 'll be in Romans, but this morning. We're going to be looking at the glory of ministry. And we've been asking you every single week that we've been here, sign up for ministry, find out that place God has for you, take, uh, take stock of your gifts and your talents, and plug in and connect. And we continue to ex- encourage all of you to do that this morning. And the reason why we encourage you to do that is because there is glory in ministry. Before we dive in, as is our custom, let's just pause for a moment and ask the Lord to help us with his Holy Spirit to illuminate the text before us. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father, once again, we come to your word, and we love it. We love it. We love it, Father. Thank you so much for speaking to us by your Son through the Holy Spirit here on the written page of Scripture. God, thank you for being a God that loves to speak to his children. We love to hear you speak. Father, my prayer this morning is as we come to the end of our brief summer series on ministry that you would stir in the hearts of all of my brothers and sisters gathered here this morning to go home even today and at least sometime this week and just finish hearing what you have to say through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. God, we pray this morning for this particular chapter, chapter 3, verses 7 to 4.1. Open our minds to understand That what we do here brings for you and through you to your people an eternal weight of glory that is beyond any comparison to anything this world has to offer. Help us to understand what glory is and help us to live for your glory. Do that. Through the word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you talk to anyone outside of the church about this word glory, chances are they're going to think sports, particularly here in Canada. Uh, They're going to think hockey. They're going to think Wayne Gretzky. They're going to think about these types of things. Um, Or at least that's what the marketers and TV executives and ticket sales agents want us to believe. And it can be fairly admitted, it can be acknowledged that there is a degree of glory of some kind in sports. I mean, there is a sort of glory to winning the Stanley Cup. There is a sort of glory to winning the Super Bowl. There is a sort of glory to being a Dallas Cowboys fan. Yeah, you know. (laughs) There's a sort of glory in these things. And this glory isn't totally foreign to the New Testament, especially to Corinth. In the first century, the ancient Corinthians' world probably had, it here in Corinth, they had their own games. Not on the same level as the Olympic Games, but they did have the Corinthian Games. And they did have individuals from around the empire that would travel to Corinth and compete in these games. And this idea of glory is an idea that would have surrounded the victor of those games. In the same way we would talk about the glory of Wayne Gretzky and winning the Stanley Cup, they undoubtedly would have understood glory to attach to people who were victors on the field of sport in their own day. And so when Paul uses this word glory, undoubtedly those types of images come to their mind. But what Paul is tasked with doing here in 2 Corinthians is defending the significance of his ministry. If you'll recall, he is being attacked by these "quote unquote" super apostles who are criticizing him and deriding him and suggesting that what it is that Paul is engaged in is not as noteworthy, not as significant, or dare I say it, not as glorious as the ministry that these other super apostles are engaged in. And if you were to read your way through the rest of the book of Second Corinthians, it would become clear to you that we are dealing with Judaizers. These are individuals who have approached this Christian church. They They want to sort of help these Corinthians live out the law of Moses, being Judaizers. And they do so not understanding the reality and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. So Paul is at pains here, talking to this church at Corinth to help them to understand that there is a glory in following Jesus Christ. And as he's defending himself and defending his ministry, here in this particular passage, he explains his ministry, what it is that he is doing, as having a glory that surpasses the glory of the Old Covenant, the glory of the Mosaic Law, the glory of what it is that these Judaizers are trying to compel these Christians in Corinth to follow. If you would, look with me. We're going to pick it up, chapter 3, verse 7. I invite you to read with me. Uh, This passage, I think, breaks down into three parts. I'll give you three broad sections to kind of wrap your mind around as we work our way exegetically through the passage. From verses 7 to 11, I want you to understand that first paragraph talking about the reality of glory, Then from verses 12 to about uh, halfway through verse 13, I want you to understand that section talking about the perception of glory. There is a real glory that is there, but there is a question of whether or not we can see it And then last but certainly not least, this glory transforms us. We are changed and we are altered by this glory. So number one, there is the reality of glory. Number two, there is the perception of glory, namely the difficulty to see it at times. And then number three, there is the transformation that happens when we do see glory. So let's just read this really quick and then we'll jump right in. In verse 7, Paul says the ministry of death... And he's talking about the Mosaic law here, the ministry of death carved in letters of stone. You'll recall Moses went up on the mountain and he got the Ten Commandments and they were inscribed on these stone tablets. That's what Paul is referring to. He says, "...the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory." There it is, number one. Ten times he's going to use this word glory. "...came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory which was being brought to an end." will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Glory, glory, glory. And I want you to also notice he's not only saying the word glory over and over and over again, that is not only the clear theme of his passage here, but he also uses the word ministry. There is a ministry that Paul is engaged in. Verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Another way to translate this word is open, namely open-faced. He's not trying to cover up or conceal himself. He's being open-faced, and this is in contrast to what Moses did. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold or very open-faced, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face. That is, he would cover his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of of what was being brought to an end. Moses covered his face so the Israelites couldn't see the glory on his face because the old covenant Paul alludes to here, and Moses must have surely sensed this or understood it in some respect, it was already obsolete. It was already coming to an end from when it was given. God had already purposed something better even in the giving of the old covenant, the Mosaic law. And so Paul touches on that. Verse 14 though, here is the issue. Their minds were hardened. To this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Moses has died. He has long since passed into the heavens, and yet as Moses covered his veil, covered his face with a veil so that the Israelites couldn't see the glory on his face, it's that Paul says, spiritually speaking, there still remains a veil that covers the Israelites to this day. They are still not capable of seeing the glory. It says their minds were hardened, and to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the, the same veil remains unlifted because it is only through Christ that it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, Paul is building his case that the new covenant ministry, marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit, is most glorious his general argument here is to suggest that yes indeed the old covenant had glory but there is a more glorious ministry out there and so his whole argument is that the new covenant comes with a superior glory than that of the old covenant and as i had already pointed out 10 times he mentions this word glory all throughout but he also describes this glory as fading in verse 7 and then again as fading away in verse 11 The word Paul uses here for fading, he uses in other instances in the New Testament to describe something that needs to be replaced. We continue to see the need for replacing the old covenant because of its results. In verse 7, he says it brought death. In verse 9, he says it condemns. The law that God gives to Moses was necessary And it's even glorious in its own way because it brings conviction. It helps us to know that we are estranged from God. It helps us to understand our spiritual predicament and we are in a precarious, dire situation. In our sins, we are still under the judgment of God. We are still under his wrath. The old covenant helps us to see that, but it doesn't deliver us. It only convicts. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Paul sets this whole paragraph up to move from the lesser to the greater. He's talking about the old covenant, which brings conviction and condemnation. But then he moves forward by applying a quote-unquote how-much-more-so argument to the new covenant. Where the old covenant brings death, Paul says the new ushers in life in the spirit of God. Where the old covenant brings condemnation, the new covenant brings in righteousness. Where the old covenant was temporary and fleeting, passing away, the new covenant is eternal. The argument here then between Paul and his critics, those who are criticizing him and who are portraying themselves as super apostles, is a question over which is better. Now, uh, for those of you who volunteered in our audiovisual ministry or work in any capacity here in our church, you know that we use computers. We use PCs. Some of our employees here prefer Macs. And eh, introduce that age-old eternal debate. Which is better, Macs or PCs? PCs. I'm looking for my friend Kyla. There she is. I see her right there. And if you ask Kyla which is better, she will proudly and unashamedly tell you Macs are better. And those of you who have Max say, that's not very many of you. <laughs> Uh-oh. Those of you who have a PC, you probably have a PC because you can afford a PC. And those of you with PC, you said, "Oh, I hear more amens for PCs. Well now, we have a little bit of a debate going on here, don't we? It's not unlike this debate. It's far more juvenile, don't get me wrong. There's not a lot of weight that hinges on whether you prefer Macs or whether you prefer PCs. But really, Paul isn't even drawing that argument. If you understand this argument to be which is better or which is cooler or which looks sleeker or which is just, you know, so Steve Jobs-esque, that's not the argument that Paul is making here. It's actually a different kind of argument. It's not an argument between Macs and PCs. It would be more like an argument between old computers versus new computers, when, uh, when Shanti and I first received the call of God to come to Canada, at that time, we were fundraising our salary, and we said to ourselves, you know what we need to do in order to keep track of our finances and to do all of our fundraising ministry? We need, we need a new computer. We didn't really have a computer at that time. We had her original computer, which her dad had given her in 1999, so from 1999 to 2008, that's like thousands of years in computer years okay and it was we'd gone from windows 95 which we were still using on her computer at that time to i think at 2008 it was windows vista i think it was vista and uh, we had tried to download vista onto her 1999 pc and it wouldn't work and so we said we'll get a new computer so we got a new one in 2008 well we used that one all the way up until 2015 and they came out with Windows 8 and Windows 11, and then like Windows 10 or Windows 10, and now they have Windows 11. I can't even keep track of it anymore. There's just always a new operating computer system coming out, and they come out with this new one, and it, our computer in 2015, 2016 doesn't work anymore. It just it won't it won't make the thing go, and so we bought a new one in 2015. That's the one that I still have today. So yes, it's six years old if you're keeping count. It is already sluggish. It is already obsolete. But whether you're looking at that computer from 1999 or whether you're looking at that computer from 2015, though they are already outdated. In fact, somebody told me just recently, I was up at Best Buy looking at potentially buying a new computer, and he was like, well, how old is your computer? And I said, well, it's 2015. And he was like, oh, man, we're two generations beyond now. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay, two generations beyond so I don't know exactly what he meant, but when I hear two generations, what I infer from that is he's saying that my computer from 2015 is like a grandpa, and new computers today are like the young, hip, happening, you know, 20-something-year-old crowd, right? So I'm thinking, 2015 is a grandpa. Well, what would this kid think of my computer that I used in the computer lab back when I was in grade four? The typewriter! That's probably what he would think of it. It's a typewriter. I mean, if my computer from 2015 is a grandpa, then the typewriter has to be something somewhere close to, like, Adam and Eve, you know. It has to be beginning of time. That is the argument that Paul is making here. If you have a typewriter—thank you for that, by the way, Pastor Al— you cannot run email on a typewriter— and if you think back to those original word processors, those original IBM you know, machines back in the 80s and whatnot, we would never have guessed at that time that we'd be downloading movies, that we'd be playing video games that were so realistic they looked like you're playing like a movie, but you're playing a character in this movie. I mean, we would never have thought of email and all these different kinds of things that we can do today based upon those machines we had back in the 80s. This is the nature of the argument that Paul is making. They're coming in and they're saying, you know what, Jesus is wonderful, but you need to continue following the Mosaic law. You need to continue putting forth effort and following all of these rules and regulations. There's glory in this. And they were buying that argument, but if you think about it, the argument that they're making is akin to my argument saying, cool iPhone, bro, but throw that away and let me hand you a typewriter. There's glory in the typewriter. And you think to yourself, click, 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 click. It makes a really loud clacking sound. It sounds cool. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should go with this old typewriter. That's the argument that Paul is saying. It's like, You guys have been hoodwinked into thinking what has already been made obsolete, what has already passed away, is having more glory than the new covenant. And he says, it doesn't. It never did. It never will. It's a gentle way of him saying, you guys are not seeing Jesus for who he really is. Now the point in all of this, what I want you to see here, is that Paul is not denying the reality of glory. He is saying to this church at Corinth, that what they're looking to for glory it has a kind of glory but it is nothing compared to Jesus Christ the first part of this argument though to understand Paul clearly here you need to grasp what he's saying is there is a real thing there is such a thing as glory glory it's not a word you and I use often in everyday speech and conversation in fact, I'm at pains to capture it for you. The closest analogy, which I've already shared with you this morning, is to point your attention towards sports. It's something akin to when your team, the team you're cheering for, the team you're pulling for, does something really amazing and unbelievable, scores that game winning shot at the buzzer. You didn't expect victory to come, but nevertheless, it does come, and you're filled beholding this event, looking at these players doing this sort of thing. There is something within you in in which you are delighted, you cheer, and you erupt in praise. That's glory as Paul is attempting to use it, to define it, but it's not glory of anything like sports. If sports has glory, if sports is where you look for glory, then I dare say you are horribly malnourished when it comes to the glory that God desires for you. He goes on to the next argument, the perception. How do we see this this glory? If Jesus really is the glory of God on earth, and if Paul's ministry reflects that, how is it then that so many people have missed it? How have the Jews clung to the Mosaic Covenant and the fading glory if an overwhelming and surpassing new glory in Jesus is present, how is it that they, that they missed it? The reality of the situation is not necessarily how it is perceived, which is what Paul is explaining here. And he starts by saying in verse 12 that he, representing all those who experience the glory of God in Christ, he is very bold, not like Moses. We can take this word bold again to actually mean that he's open-faced, okay? That uh, he is sharing this glory with them. And his argument is this. Those who turn to Jesus Christ have been opened to his glory. They are opening themselves up also to express that glory. And this begins another contrast between the people of the old and the new covenants. In the old covenant, the glory was hidden. It was tucked away behind a veil. Moses' face was veiled. But Paul is saying that he has seen the glory, and now he is proclaiming the glory. This is what he wants the church at Corinth to know. You say, wait a minute, pastor, are you really sure? Absolutely, that is the meaning of the word. We know that because of what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. I didn't include this in the original sermon text, but I just want to share this verse with you really quick. Look with me. Chapter 4, verse 1, he makes all this statement about glory and the ministry of glory and the new covenant, and he says, therefore, having this ministry, having this service where we're proclaiming the glory, he says, by God's having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He continues to press home the glory of Jesus Christ to anybody who will hear it. And to those who have heard it, but for some odd reason are turning to an obsolete and outdated form of glory, he's calling them back to Jesus Christ. The the preoccupation of the church with the glory of Jesus Christ and looking to Jesus, that is the priority and the chief concern of the Apostle Paul. And that's what he's driving home to them here. The issue is not whether or not there is a glory. The issue is whether or not we are looking for it and striving to see it and to behold it. A number of years ago, I saw a YouTube video It's an interesting video of a violin player playing a violin in the subway in Washington, D.C. The video is is sped up. It, It basically is covering 45 minutes of time, but it packs all of that into about four and a half minutes. But as the video plays, the audio of what this violin player is playing on his violin is uninterrupted. So you hear this beautiful music playing and you see this packed subway full of people over the course of 45 minutes, and people are just flying past him, just going around him. That's what's happening in the video. And in fact, if, if you really were to analyze that video, in that time, somewhere around 1,000 people go past this violin player as he's playing his violin. In that whole time, as over 1,000 people pass him, seven people out of 1,000 will stop to listen. Of those seven, six of them just stop for a few moments. They don't even stay a whole minute. They just kind of stop and they listen and then they're on their way. Out of a thousand people that pass this violin player, in the course of 45 minutes, one person stops and listens for close to 36 minutes. In the video, again, it's only like two and a half minutes. But but this person listens the whole way through. She is the only one out of a thousand who recognized that this man was one of the most talented musicians in the whole world. And in fact, he was playing one of the most expensive violins in the whole world. And he was performing a concert right there in the subway of Washington, D.C. And that just blows my mind. Out of those thousands of people that live in that very cosmopolitan city, most of them, probably if you'd ask them, would tell you that what this guy was playing on his violin was indeed beautiful. But they couldn't be troubled to slow down to really enjoy it or to appreciate it. Of those thousand people that are flying past this violin player, one person said, forget whatever else I've got going on today. This is beautiful music. And she heard him play, and she heard him play gladly. As far as the world of music, or at least perhaps classical music, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more important parallel to the glory of Jesus Christ than what you see there. There's no question that Jesus is glorious. There's no question that He is beautiful. And there is no question that in following Him, our lives are transformed. There's no question about it. And yet, if we were to step back and to look at our lives, the vast majority of us are preoccupied rushing from A to B and not slowing ourselves down to take in what it is that Jesus is presenting to us. We, over time, start to wonder is there glory in this? Is there joy in this? We start to look around, to cast about for other experiences, other types of worship, other types of of religion even. Not because there is no glory in Jesus, but because we do not stop to look to Jesus and to behold his glory. That's the issue, church. That is the issue. What Paul is asserting here, as these guys are looking to the ministry of Moses and the Old Covenant, is that his ministry, if you're going to compare these two, is most glorious. Not because Paul is an eloquent speaker. He doesn't call himself an eloquent speaker, especially as he compares himself to these other super apostles. Paul's ministry is most glorious not because he has some sort of stellar resume. He's been all the right schools and he's trained under all the right rabbis. Paul's ministry is more glorious than these other guys. In fact, his ministry is most glorious because of the one whom he is proclaiming. It is most glorious because of Jesus. And the real issue is if they can't see it, It's because there is a veil that is laying over their hearts. As he talks about it here, he says their hearts have been hardened. So young people, I'm talking to you today. Old people, I'm talking to you as well. To all of us, the scriptures are speaking. As we think about our walk with Jesus, as we think about our relationship with God, Are we bored with it? When the pastor stands up for six weeks and says, let's get involved in ministry, do we continue to hear that as some sort of an obligation to Christian duty? Or are we seeing it as an opportunity to see more of the glory of Jesus and to proclaim that glory? You know, especially for young people, I just cringe. All they know is what they see in the video games and on TV and on the Internet. It's what their friends are telling them. All they can see is the world around them. When they think of glory, when they think of what is noble and beautiful and worthy of their time, they see things like fashion. They see things like music. Not Christian music, mind you, rock and roll, or pop, or something like this. I mean, I know so many young people here as well as back home in Texas. They get into high school and they start thinking to themselves, man, let's form a rock band. I'm going to learn an instrument. I'm going to learn how to cut it up on the guitar. Others are like, you know, I'm going to really excel in vocals. We're going to get together and we're going to have a rock band. People are going to cheer for us. Do you know what it is that they're hungering for? That's glory. That's glory. But it's the glory of the world. It's not the glory of God. This last week, there were three. I'm not going. I'm not going to tell you who. When I was a kid, I listened to bands that were not Christian. And this last week, I learned that. Different instrumentalists in three different bands that I was really into when I was a teenager died. Two of them, relatively young, because of all the hard partying that these rockers did throughout their life. They just didn't have healthy livers. And now they've gone to their eternal reward, whatever that might be. And they spent their whole life chasing after a glory which ultimately faded and perished. Any glory that we seek outside of Jesus Christ is no glory at all. The Apostle Paul says that there is a greater glory in Jesus. So he says, beginning in verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, he says. And where the Spirit of the Lord is There is freedom. So in order to have this veil removed, the first thing that any of us must do is we must come to Jesus Christ and we must accept as a measure of faith that there is something truly beautiful there. And we're being told this from the scriptures. Undoubtedly, we know that there's power in the word of God and we're hearing all of this and perhaps we're convicted and we recognize that the things we've been chasing after our whole life are wrong, that they don't profit Perhaps we were recognizing that we're wasting our life and yet at the end of the day we still will not be able to see our way clear of those things in which we are entrapped until we come to Jesus in faith. Paul says that there is a veil which remains over hardened hearts that veil is only taken away when they turn to Jesus. And so if you're here today and you've been chasing after all manner of different things, looking for purpose, meaning, fulfillment, or satisfaction and all of those things, I think what you'll discover if you haven't already done so is that at the end of all of those things, you are still left empty. You are still left wanting. You are still unsatisfied. And for all those teenagers that are looking to become rockers at some point, thinking that there's fame and glory in rock, hear the wisdom of Bono from the band YouTube, I still haven't found what I'm looking for yet. He writes this Grammy award-winning song in which he proclaims unabashedly and unashamedly, there isn't a lot of joy at the end of this road. But I would encourage you not to listen to the wisdom of Bono over the word of God, which says clearly Turn to the Lord and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Look at what he says here. When we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. He says that in verse 16. Verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And as we ponder this, we recognize that all those things we chased after our whole life, they never really satisfied us. But you know what else was happening as we were chasing after those things? We just became even more addicted to them. Our hearts were shaped. It wasn't a satisfying glory. There wasn't anything that was really beneficial to us in most of those things that we chased after our whole life. And yet in chasing after them, we found ourselves gradually over time. It didn't happen in a single night. Nevertheless, over time, we're we're enslaved we know it doesn't profit we know it doesn't bless us and yet we can't seem to turn away from it if we turn to Jesus Paul says here we are delivered we're set free there is a freedom in Christ and so I'm speaking to you here now today at the start of another ministry year Many of us have made excuses for why we ought not to be involved in church, why we are busy, why we've got other things to do. There are three Sundays in which we have high attendance here at First Baptist Church. Invariably, for whatever reason, one comes at the start of the school year, the other one comes right at Christmas, and the third one comes right at Easter. And so I'm taking this opportunity now to say to you... Whatever's going on all year long where you start to drift away from church and you only feel the need to come back at Christmas time or at Easter, you are slowly chaining yourself to something that will not satisfy you. You say, Pastor Josh, my schedule gets too busy. No, your schedule, the amount of time you have is the exact same amount of time that I have. The question is not, I'm too busy, I don't have enough time. The question is, how will you take the same amount of hours in your day that you have been given, which I have been given, and how will you use those hours? If you're choosing to fill up your calendar with things that draw your focus, your attention, and your heart away from the Lord, then you are making a grave mistake. Jesus is awesome. I'm here. Yesterday, uh, we had a funeral for our brother Ralph Vanderhyde yesterday, and uh, I was here helping with the fellowship, uh, the reception afterwards. And I'm downstairs in the kitchen with a few brothers and sisters, and I'm washing dishes. I'm drying dishes, actually. John Marlowe was washing the dishes. But I'm after they come out of the sanitizer, I'm drying them, and we're, we're putting them away. And we're just laughing and talking. We're talking about the Lord. We're talking about the current world we're living in. We're talking about how the Lord would have us to live in the current world that we're living in. And in all of these conversations, as we're washing dishes, we're laughing, we're enjoying each other, we're encouraging each other. I say to you, you want to be involved in ministry? Get involved in a kitchen. You say, "Mm, I don't think that's my gifting, pastor. It's not hard to wash a dish. You don't need to be gifted. The question really isn't, are you good at washing dishes, though? It's where will your friends be? Where will your conversation take you? whom will you talk to and how will you delight in the Lord through that conversation? I know all of us in this room, we got a nine to five job. We got to pay the bills somehow. I know it, you know it, we all know it. The problem is we go to our work, we allow that to consume the best of us. And at the end of the day, we go home, we crash in front of the TV or the computer or our phone And we allow the world to take those free moments of leisure time that we have after a hard day's work to entertain us, to shape us, to mold us. All of this is enslavement. I'm not saying you need to quit your job and be at the church 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. What I am saying is what Paul is alluding to here is that there is a glory to behold if we would look for it. And what I'm saying to you is that there is a glory in ministry. Both of those things are true in this passage. And so I'm reminded of an age-old statement. Perhaps you've heard it. God doesn't use ministry to get work done God uses ministry to get people done. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. And I want to share with you a passage that has continued to challenge me and inspire me. And I want it to challenge and inspire you as you look towards this next year. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, The scripture says to us that the word, this is a reference to Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And look at this. We have seen his glory. We've looked at Jesus and it was beautiful. It was glorious. It was captivating. He says, glory as of the only son from the father, full of of grace and truth. There is a parenthetical comment there in verse 15. John bore witness about him. I want you to jump to verse 16. He says, From his fullness, that is the fullness of the glory of Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. Now look at what he says here in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God, Jesus, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Well, the Apostle John is saying there is, man, seeing glory is wonderful. When we beheld Jesus, we received grace upon grace. I didn't read it to you, but he even contrasts this with the law of Moses in that exact same paragraph. He's like, you know, Moses gave us the law, but we've received mercy and grace from the glory of beholding Jesus Christ. He says, no one's seen God. No one has seen God. Jesus, who comes from the Father's side, has made him known to us. This is a big problem for Israel. All the nations around Israel, they worship all kinds of gods, and they would build these wonderfully elaborate idols They'd look at these idols, they'd say, look, here is our God. They'd have these totem poles and these ashtras and different figurines set up. And they'd say, look, there's a, our God. And they'd look at Israel, they'd laugh, and they'd say, where is your God? And this was always a problem for Israel. Well, our God's invisible, we can't see him. He's commanded us not to make any graven image that looks like him, but he's there, and he's real. they say, here's our God, you don't have a God, you're playing make-believe God. Always an issue for Israel. The apostle John says, "We've never seen him, but we've seen Jesus and we've received glory from beholding Jesus Christ. We've received grace upon grace." Now, flip with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 beginning in verse 12. Look at what John says here. No one has ever seen God. He starts off, same author, different book, same guy that wrote the Gospel of John, Same author, he starts off this sentence the exact same way, with the exact same words, there is no difference here, as to what he said over in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, same beginning expression, no one has ever seen God. And it's at this moment, you'd expect him to say, but we've seen Jesus, and from the glory of Jesus, we receive grace upon grace, right? That's what you'd think he he would say, because he said that over in the Gospel of John, but here he says something different. I pray you have a real Bible in your hands right now to look at this. He says, no one has ever seen God. Look at what he says. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Ministry where we serve each other, and as we've been defining it over these last several weeks, if we would serve each other and we'd understand that ministry is giving at our own expense for the blessing of others to the glory of God, if we would do that, God's presence will be among us, but he is always among us, what this apostle is saying is that it will be manifested. In other words, there will be something that will be perceivably sensed. There will be something that can be beheld and looked upon when we, out of love for Christ, would serve Christ's people. No one has ever seen God. But if we would engage in ministry and love each other, God's love would be manifested That is, it would be made to be perceived here among us. And as we continue to labor in this ministry, what John is saying is that it would be perfected among us. Do you want to see the glory of the Lord? Do you want to see what Jesus looks like? A brother or a sister who takes it as a serious business the glory of his brother or sister. Loving him, serving him, encouraging him to look to Jesus Christ. That kind of ministry, when it happens here among us, does not in any way, shape, or form earn our salvation, but we see the glory of God. We get bored with God because we keep our focus on ourselves. We get tired with church because we are only thinking in regards to our own personal convenience. But there is a glory here for you if you will see it. I want to call attention to one person in particular this morning who has challenged me, humbled me, and very regularly convicted me. He's never said a word you all know him quite well. He's one of the quietest men in this church. I'm talking about Dustin Patterson. Here's a man who works shift work four days on, four days off. He works two day shifts. He works two night shifts. As a result of his schedule, his work schedule, there's a month of Sundays that he is free to come to church. And then there's a month of Sundays that he is booked for work, but he's still at church. In fact, if you were to step back and really look at Dustin Patterson, you would discover that he never misses church. This morning, he cooked all of you a pancake breakfast with bacon. And did you know he worked the night shift last night? He started at 5 o'clock p.m. and he worked until 5 o'clock a.m. And then he went home and got his family and came back up here to the church. I got here at 7.30. I walked in the kitchen, and he's under the stove trying to light the pilot light. This man misses Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. He misses, they give you Sunday pay. It's like holiday pay. He probably wouldn't feel comfortable with me sharing this, but he has forfeited on his paycheck Tens of thousands of dollars for the last two years, making sure to be here at church every week. I say to him recently, why did you do it? And he laughs and he says, well, because I think you're a pretty cool guy. <laughs> it's not his exact words. I'm paraphrasing. If you know Dustin Patterson, you know how to have to paraphrase that a little bit. He says, there's joy and there's glory in the brotherhood. And I want to do my part to serve. I want you to see that glory. I want you to give as God has called you to give. I want you to serve the way the Lord would have you to serve. Oftentimes we get involved in service and nobody ever says thank you. We're laboring in the 55 plus ministry or we're working with a bunch of rowdy teens in the youth group. We're coming to Awana and the Awana kids. We've tried to get them to memorize John three sixteen for God so loved the world. And time again, time and again, they just blow it right at the end, and you get frustrated. You're like, "Come on, it's John three sixteen. Everybody knows this." And oftentimes, what will happen is people will come to me and say, "You know what? I don't feel like I'm bearing any fruit in this ministry this year, and so I'm going to step back and not serve." and not be involved. And what I share with them is what I want to share with you today. You don't serve so that the veil is lifted. Only the Lord can lift the veil. You serve so that God is glorified. And if you're looking for the applause and the approval of men, you will never, ever be happy in ministry. But if you serve for the applause and approval of God, you will never be disappointed. Many, many, many years ago, I uh, would drive regularly back and forth between Brenham and Bryant College Station, Texas. There's a little town halfway between those two towns called Independence. It's actually where the republic of texas signed its independence from mexico it's a little town in the middle of nowhere but it's really famous I have roses antique emporium there any antiquers in the room this place has every kind of antique piece of furniture you could ever want but what's even more impressive about this place is it's got these just acres upon acres of rolling blue bonnets and Shanti and I would go there on occasion and have picnics, but everybody and their dog would go there. There's nothing in Independence, Texas, except these fields of these beautiful, beautiful blue bonnet wildflowers. And people would go and they'd have their pictures taken. You'll have a whole crew, a whole family, whole churches. will drive out to the middle of nowhere to have the whole church gather in these just massive fields with all these blue bonnets and have their picture taken. And so what happens really quickly into the season, all these blue bonnets get trampled, they get picked, they get plucked, and they all get abused. And and I was there one time, just my wife was going through the antique shop looking at different antiques, and I was there, and I was praying, I was talking to the Lord, and I was walking through these fields, and all these blue bonnets are trampled. They are all kind of, they were beautiful at one point, but they've all been beaten down over time. And I crossed over a little bit of a hill, and I went down into a valley, and there it was, all by itself, there was a single, solitary blue bonnet. These things spread like wildfire, kind of like weeds, they are weeds in a sense, But there was this one blue bonnet somehow all by itself. And I was sitting there looking at it, and it hadn't been trampled. The grass around it was not pressed down. Nobody had discovered this blue bonnet. All these blue bonnets have been walked on and trampled. They're all beat up. And I see this one beautiful blue bonnet in the middle of nowhere. And I'm thinking to myself, God, why would you put this one beautiful blue bonnet here where no one can see it? And in that moment, in the quiet of my heart, I sensed the Lord saying back to me, I can see it. The church, pursue the Lord in ministry. Anticipate that you will get beaten down. Know that it's going to happen. But above all, remember that the Lord sees you. But what's most important is that you see the Lord. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, With unveiled face, we all, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our prayer this morning as we come to the close of this passage is that we would see you and see how you are at work among us, beholding you in your word, beholding you on the cross, seeing you in all your glory, in all your beauty. And recognizing that, Lord, being stirred to continue to proclaim that gospel message as a church, being stirred to continue to spread around us, this aroma, this fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Whether some like the smell of it, whether others hate the smell of it, God, our prayer is that we would be preoccupied proclaiming Christ. Lord, as we gather here this morning, we come to the end of this passage on ministry, this section of 2 Corinthians. But Lord, I pray that you would just press it home into our hearts, that you have called us to your side, to you, to serving you. And I pray that as we do so, Lord, we would not look around us, but we would just continue to look to you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.